I'm a child of God. Having my hand. Powerful word of God. Can change lives. Heal broken hearts. Save man's soul. Lord Jesus, today, speak to me. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn to your neighbor and say, Amen. In those Bibles, we'll be in John chapter 1, verses 43 through 51. And our, and our main emphasis verse today is verse 51. And there's three things I want you to take away from these passages. I'm going to break them up into three sessions. Rather than read all of them at once, I'm going to break them up into three se- sections and, and share with you from those. Um. You ever get emails, spam emails? Just seem like I get more spam emails than real emails. Happened to get one that caught my eye, uh, and it, it was just titled "Tidbits of Cynical Wisdom." You know, people can be cynical a lot, can't they? Let me share a few of those that came my way. Cynical thoughts. If you think nobody cares about you, try missing a couple of payments. Change is inevitable except from the vending machines. For every action, there's an equal and opposite criticism. (laughs) He who hesitates is probably right. No one is listening until you make a mistake. Two wrongs are only the beginning. Monday is an awful way to spend one-seventh of your life. A clear conscience is usually the sign of a bad memory. (laughs) I like that one. Bills travel through the mail at twice the speed of checks. 42.7% of all statistics are made up on the spot. If at first you don't succeed, then skydiving definitely isn't for you. (laughs) Experience is a hard teacher, amen? Life does not always meet our expectations. We find ourselves revising our expectations, usually downward. John the Baptist was a forerunner of Jesus. And he was a great one to look for in relation to leadership. Because he proclaimed that Jesus is the Christ, not John. He pointed others to Christ. He prompted others to follow Christ. And those are the things that God wants you and me to do in our lives. Our spiritual leaders will disappoint us. I will disappoint you. More than likely I have over the period of time I've been your preacher. Most preachers stay for four to five years, that's the average, and then they move on because they've let people see enough of them they don't want to deal with what they are to make changes, and so they leave. And they go do it in another place. And they do it in another place. I'm just grateful that you've allowed me to face my demons 
and work through those demons while I've been your preacher. Not always easy. It's very difficult. But we have to do it in life. Amen? Spiritual leaders say the wrong things. They don't recognize effort over the, uh, on the part of others. They try, to, they try to take credit instead of letting others get the credit. They can be greedy and petty and can hurt people deeply. But in our passages today, I want us to see something that's very important for us to see. We're going to meet a man named Nathaniel. He had tasted disappointment in his life. And that disappointment had turned him cynical. Ever happened to you? Life, life starts throwing you some lemons. I mean, some uh, yeah, some lemons, and you just you just get cynical. Well, I'll never get over this. Well, I'll never find another job. Well, I'll never find another friend. Well, boy, he's going on and on and on. Well, I'll never make the kind of money that that person makes. Uh, okay. We get cynical. Well, I'm going to go get a car, and as soon as I drive off the lot, the engine will fall out. I guarantee it. We'll do it. Yeah, I'll go down to your church with you. Okay, yeah. Well, the preacher will probably preach on tithing. And sure enough. Nathaniel comes face to face with Jesus. And because of that personal encounter, his perspective changes. After the encounter, Christ promises Nathaniel greater insights than he, he had ever hoped for. I was curious what cynicism might look like or sound like or be defined and I found a little short video I want to show you right now, and I hope you can. I hope this will help. It helped me. Faith is a choice. It's not a a warm feeling. I mean, there are moments of that. <laughs> uh, moments of inspired uh, feeling and and experience. Um, but faith is a choice. Um, somebody once told me the the only difference between a a cynic and a saint was a decision to believe, the choice to have faith. It may be that cynics and saints are the two kinds of people who see the world most honestly. They cut through all the religions, all the, all the nonsense that, that sustains many other people, all the things that really aren't true. But we like to believe them when it keeps us going. The cynics and the saints all see through that. The only difference in the cynic and the saint is the presence of faith. The interesting part about that statement, did you hear it? The difference between cynicism and victory, basically, is faith. It's faith. Faith can make a big difference. So I want us to look at verses 43 through 46, and I want us to meet Philip, who is enthusiastic and Nathaniel, who's a cynic. Pick it up at verse 3 with me. It says, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. 
Now, Philip was from Bethsaida and the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. So the passage starts with Christ calling Philip, not giving many details about the call. John only tells us that Philip responded in faith and then followed, which was the hallmark of most of the early disciples. He would say, Come, and they said, Okay. They just dropped everything and went. How about today? Could you, could if Jesus came and said, Hey, come follow me, could you just drop everything and go? Would you drop everything and go? Well, if I thought it was Jesus, I sure would. Oh, okay. All right. I'm just, I'm just checking. I'm just checking. There is a Jesus operating over in Europe, and I can't remember the country he's in, but he calls himself Jesus the Messiah, and he's got quite a following. Dresses up in a robe, has a sash over his shoulder. Teaching's a little sketchy. My boy's got a following. Only because he calls himself Jesus. The Bible's very clear. In the last days, many, many antichrists, plural, will arise. So there's going to be many who show up who say and believe that they're Jesus, but they're not. But Philip responded in faith and followed. But look what Philip did. He, find, he finds Nathaniel. In some translations, he's called Bartholomew. And he tells him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. So the gospel doesn't give many details about the call. It doesn't give many, many more details about what he said. But I believe that you can take away from that two things. You'll have to write this down. I'm not going to... I don't have it all spelled out for you. Number one, Philip knew. Philip knew Nathaniel well enough to know his interest in the coming of the Messiah. Even though Nathaniel was a cynic... About it all, they had at least had conversations where he knew that Nathaniel would be interested in it. And then secondly, Philip was enthusiastic about sharing his encounter that he had had with Christ. You see, when you meet Jesus, something changes in you. Ought to change in you. Will change in you. I love to watch football. Most of you know that. This is my favorite time of year. And so as I watch football at all different levels, doesn't matter, high school, college, professionals, I guess you call them professionals. But I love to watch the dynamic of how a team may be struggling And the coaches will get them together and the coaches will rehearse with them. Hey, look, don't you remember what we taught you? Don't remember what we said? This guy's doing this. He'll do this. If he does this, you do this. And then they go back out and do what the coach teaches them to do. And lo and behold, everything works better. 
lo and behold, it works better. Because, see, when we're running on our own strength is when we get behind. But when we're running on the strength of knowledge that's been given to us from practical experience, wow, wow, great things can happen. Amen? It can happen. So one person commends Christ to another and face-to-face, person-to-person, and you do that in the context of a relationship. Evangelism today is done better not by going and knocking on the doors. People don't want you coming to their door at night. You don't like it when the Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door. Don's the only one that likes them to come. None of us like them to come because they're going to sit there and try and they're going to twist the scripture. And if you don't have a real good grasp of scripture, they're going to twist you up and you'll agree with them. And all of a sudden, they'll mark your house as a potential convert to Jehovah's Witness. So arm yourself with the knowledge to know what to say. Okay? But on the norm, most people don't like the confrontation, they don't like it. Because you don't have a relationship with them, and you don't really want a relationship with them. But knocking on the door is not as effective as it used to be years ago. Years ago, you can knock on the door. People open the doors, hey, how are you? And they let you in and all that stuff. Well, now they're running so fast. I mean, they get off work. they got to grab the kids. they got to get to a ball game, ball practice, something. And not just one, but two. And if you've got two of them playing... Hopefully they're playing in the same area so you can split up and go. <laughs> I remember we had all three of our kids playing at the same night, same time. Cindy and I just, we waved at each other as we walked from field to field to watch them play. It's just crazy. It's just crazy. But that was some of the best times for us because I could build relationships with people. I had a context in, in, with sports, youth sports, to have a way to give a relationship with them. You need to have those relationships. You need to find a way to build that relationship. Nathaniel, however, came back very cynically when he said, Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? Many people have a reaction like that. Nazareth had the reputation of being full of Foolish people. Now, that may not have been the case, but I believe that's where Nathaniel was going with it. He had become cynical. He was passionate about Israel. Israelites' deep longing for meaning and worth came from their national identity. They searched. They really were deep-seated, godly people seeking God. God's covenant people. And Nathaniel, this good Israelite, longed for God to redeem Israel like he was taught when he was a child. He longed for God to send a Messiah who would lead Israel into this new era of prominence internationally. But like so many, he bound up his sense of purpose and worth with his people. He kept it enclosed there and wouldn't open his sphere of influence. And so he suffered disappointment. Prophets and preachers wandered throughout Israel proclaiming that the Messiah was coming and yet Israel was still in Roman chains. 
Nathaniel was becoming cynical and jaded. His attitude was, show me the money. I've heard all the claims. Now let's see some action. Philip persevered and invited Nathaniel to come in and see. And Philip was not put off by Nathaniel's cynicism. Nor should you be. You know how it is. You invite somebody to come to church with you, and what do they say? Eh, I've tried church. Uh, I've tried that. Eh, I don't want to go that. Eh, I... Or they'll say, do you have a worship band? Yes. Well, I tell them it's, more than nine, no, it's only two people. Well, I tell them that. But we have a worship band. And periodically we have a drummer. Yeah. Was the preacher really good? Well, that's on you. You know, lie to him if you have to. Get him to church. I don't matter. He preaches just like Billy Graham. Now, I'd like that. Francis Schaeffer, he was an apologist. And he once said that honest questions never, excuse me, honest questions deserve honest answers. And the, the key phrase there is honest. <clears throat> honest questions. Skeptics ask questions, but they usually have smoked and smoke and mirror <clears throat> trying to obscure the deeper thoughts. Well, you see that today in the political arena. They ask what they call the gotcha questions. If they were to ask a Bible question to a political candidate, they might ask a question like this. Do you still beat your wife? However you answer, that's going to be wrong. But the one that would really throw them is this. Oh, I've got a Bible question for you. Did Adam have a navel? Ever contemplated that? Did Adam have a navel? See, 4 o'clock this afternoon, you're going to go. What did that have to do? Anything with the sermon? Because skeptics will ask questions to send you off on a tangent and stay away from an encounter with Christ. You keep it toward Christ. Right? I read a story about a man that uh, every morning when he left his apartment, he, he saw uh, another person riding, uh, waiting for his ride to work. Uh, and he was friendly, he greeted uh, greeted each other with a smile and a few friendly words. And, but the other guy was a rough-looking character, muscular, wiry, shaggy hair, a tattoo, a cigarette, usually hanging from his mouth. Well, one evening, this guy came home to find him talking with his wife, Tammy, out, outside the door of their house. He was high on ecstasy. He told me that he had gotten in some trouble with the law a while back for drunk driving and had seriously injured another driver. And now his parole officer was looking for him and he was scared. He told me that about the time that he spent in jail, he told me about his young son 
whom he never sees because the mother took him back home to Maine. He told me about his best friend who killed himself while high on heroin. He had a history of drug and alcohol abuse. He came from a horribly dysfunctional family. A pitiful look came to his eyes. He said, but I'm a good person, you know. I wouldn't hurt anybody. I love people. I'm a good person. He had a longing within him, the story goes on to say. And it was a longing that drugs didn't answer and money didn't answer and sex didn't answer. It was the longing for significance, the longing for wholeness, the longing for cleanliness when he felt so dirty. Nathaniel's question was smoke and mirrors. He didn't really want an answer. But Philip didn't bother to answer because he knew the deeper heart question. And so Philip simply said, come and see. Come and see the Christ and encounter Him for yourself and you'll get the answers that you want. Which takes us to verse 47 and 48. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. So Christ the King disarms Nathanael's cynicism. We shift from cynicism to the actual encounter between Christ and Nathanael. And it sounds kind of odd. Nathanael's response to Christ is a little bit on the dramatic side. You know anybody that just tends to have drama upon drama upon drama? I mean, everything that goes on. I asked Cindy every day, how did you, you, it go today at work? Thursday she said, I broke up a fight at work. Well, that got my attention. I can just see her in there just going to fisticuffs. With, that was my vision. Boy, the little five-footers in there taking them down. This is awesome. Basically, you had a bunch of adults acting like four-year-olds in the workplace. Now, you don't. any of you experience that at your place of, of employment? Brian's excluded. <laughs> yeah. April literally deals with four-year-olds, yes. <clears throat> That's true. But Jesus saw Nathaniel and he saw two things. First, he called Nathaniel a true Israelite. See, Jesus recognized that Nathaniel was sincere in his faith. But secondly, he told Nathaniel that he had seen him sitting under the fig tree. The true Israelite worked... That worked on a couple of levels. On the surface, Jesus said, you are faithful. And on another level, it was a play on words, referring to the patriarch Jacob, who was, no guile was found in him. you got to go back to Genesis and read that story. He was a trickster until he wrestled with God. And then his perspective changed. The fig tree... And Scripture was used as a place of rest and comfort. The prophets of ancient Israel used the image of the fig tree to convey a picture of God's end-time kingdom. In Zechariah 3.10, 
In that day, each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. And the prophet Micah used that same imagery in chapter 4 and verse 5 of Micah. Faithful Israelites would sit under a fig tree, a place of prayer and hope and expectation. We don't use fig trees today. We go to Starbucks. Or we'll go to a coffee shop. Or we'll go to some place like that where we can sit down and have a drink together. We don't know what Nathaniel expected. I don't know. Maybe he expected a sales pitch. Maybe he expected uh, Jesus to just say, Hey, you need to follow me. He wasn't sure. Four out of five experts agree that I am the Messiah, but Jesus greeted Nathaniel unexpectedly by speaking directly to what was most on his heart. See, a lot of people think you're up to something when you come, especially when you come and talk about church. They think you're up to something. That's why you need to buy them a lunch or buy them a breakfast. So they, they feel like they get something out of it. If they've got to come and listen, they've got to come sit through it, then they've got to, okay, here we go. They've got to go meet the people they don't know. At least they're going to get a good meal out of it. Nathaniel responds with simple faith. He told Christ, You are the Son of God, King of Israel. Switching quickly from cynicism to being touched. See, you can believe. Satan will get you to believe that if you respond to Christ in faith and you're baptized into Christ and you rise to walk a new life, Satan is going to convince you that it's a waste of time. Even while you're in the water waiting to be baptized, going through your mind and your heart is, should I be doing this? Or am I really should be doing this? I, I'm, I'm not sure I should be doing this. Because he's working on you. Satan is always working on us to try to get us to fail. And then when we go into water, we come out of the water, we, we experience the freedom that we've never felt before. We experience the burdens being lifted that we've never felt before. We feel the sins washing away that we've never experienced before. Why? Because we had that dynamic encounter with Christ. There was a man who was coming home from speaking at a conference. His speech was had been a disaster. Many of the colleagues had rejected his ideas. The man was tired and didn't feel like talking to anybody, so he did the one thing that was guaranteed to keep people away. He opened up his Bible. <laughs> he told himself he'd just flip open and read whatever was there. So he flips open the Bible. You ever done this? And it lands on a verse and you read it, and if it, lo and behold, if it isn't the verse that you needed. That's coincidence, isn't it? He flips it open to Psalm 23. Psalm 23, he said to himself with annoyance, Wonderful, I've memorized that psalm. I've taught classes on that psalm. What in the world could I possibly learn from this? But he swallowed his pride and he read it. And he read the Lord. And he stopped. Took a deep breath and he read, The Lord is. Stopped again. A tear 
began to roll down his cheek and splash on the page as he felt God's presence there with him through his tiredness and his disappointment. And he read again, The Lord is my shepherd. And oblivious to everybody around him in the little restaurant, he began to weep because he was sensing the envelopment of God's mighty love around him and his arms embracing him. Because Jesus gets past our walls and defenses to touch us where we need him the most. And now on to verses 50 and 51, Christ now promises great and greater insight. Pick it up at verse 50. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, or verily, verily, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Verse 51 is a critical verse for us today. There is going to come a time, I think sooner than later, when we're going to hear the trumpet call of God and He's going to step out on, on, in space and everyone will see Him and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It will happen. How do I know it will happen? In Acts chapter 1, when He ascended to heaven, the angel said, Why do you men stand gazing into heaven? The same way you saw Him go, you will see Him come again. The promise! And God keeps His promise. And so Nathaniel was then encouraged not to be cynical, but to rejoice. Because what I am is going to happen. And what I bring, God can bless. And you need to be ready. You need to be ready, Nathaniel. You need to let the deepest yearnings in your heart express faith and knowledge and excitement and enthusiasm about the Lord you serve. I mean, we get excited about some crazy things, don't we? Amen. Perfect timing. They thought I said amen. I got you. I'm almost there. But we've got to have it. You get excited when you walk by a dessert table. I know you do. You get excited when ice cream is on the on the menu. You get excited when you see some of these things. You get excited when you see your team win a game. You get real excited about that. Or you get downcast when they don't. But Christ needs to become the King. And when He's the King, everything is totally different within us. Everything. Victor Hugo wrote Les Miserables. It's a great story. It's 
It's a great movie. Jean Valjean is the main character. He's a hardened convict who has just been released from prison. He can't find work. Everywhere he goes, he must show his papers telling of his crimes. And people turn him away. And in desperation, he jumps parole and destroys his papers. A crime that would send him back to prison for life. And while he's on the run, he finds shelter at the house of a priest. That night, while the priest is asleep, Jean Valjean steals the only objects of worth in the house, the silverware and the silver candlesticks. Valjean is stopped by the police for violating curfew, and they find the stolen goods. And when the police take him back to the priest's house, the priest, awakened by the guard, says that he has given the candlesticks as a gift. He sends the police on their way. Then he turns to Valjean, saying that he has spared Valjean in the name of Christ. He gives Jean Valjean the candlesticks and the silverware and charges him to become an honest man. All that day, Valjean wrestled with inner turmoil. He's shocked and confounded by what the priest had done. He debates on whether he should kill him or if he should just run with the money. Somewhere in the midst of his turmoil of anger, and confusion. God enters the picture and breaks Jean Valjean's heart. Valjean then dedicates himself to the pursuit of goodness. And for the rest of the book, Jean Valjean tries to live a just and a noble life while the merciless inspector, Javert, hunts for him. Valjean was a cynic. Christ came to him through unexpected means, spoke to him, and Jean Valjean was so touched that he responded in faith. And Christ carried him through the unexpected and successively harder circumstances of life that he was yet to lead. And you see, the gospel can do that for cynics. And if He can do it for cynics, He can do it for you. Father, I ask You this morning that if there's a cynic among us, that they might find a way to respond to You. That, Father, they might understand Your great love for them. That, Father, they might realize that we can have questions. But in the process of having questions, we've got to ultimately answer that final question. As verse 51 says, we are going to see, we are going to see the Son of Man rising and coming again. And so God, through faith, we anticipate His coming. Through faith, we believe that He has risen. And through faith, we're awaiting His return. If there might be someone in this building this morning who doesn't have that assurance in their heart that if you were to come today, they would go with you. We want them to leave here with that assurance in their heart today. 
God, would they make us, let us know that so that we can help them, we can study with them, and we can show them in your scripture that all these things were written so that we might know that we have everlasting life. And if we'll but come to you and confess our sins to you, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Would there be one today, Jesus, that would respond? In your name we pray. Amen. Song of invitation.